Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos. Uh, I love getting emails and questions from you guys. You send them in all the time, and I keep them in a long queue, and I pull out uh, five or six of them every week, and uh, it's just been having a lot of fun doing that, over 400 episodes worth. I hope you guys know that the entire library of work on my channel is almost all evergreen content that you can check out anytime you want and will still hold true and good. Almost all of it. There are some time-specific things and event-specific things I've commented on or done podcasts about, but so much of the content on my channel is there for you to look at anytime and will still hold true. And I say this only because I want you guys to delve deep into my podcasts and my Q&A shows and also check out the Critical Clips channel that I've put together where I post Monday through Friday single answers or, or single subject clips on that clips channel where you can get answers that I've given in previous episodes. And just a few weeks ago, we crossed over a thousand videos, a thousand answers to questions you guys have asked me all there for you on that Critical Clips channel, which you can search and find what you're looking for. If you're looking for answers about TRs, just look for TRs. If you're looking for something about Scientology and David Miscavige, search Miscavige. You'll find a lot of videos with his name in the title. Or L. Ron Hubbard, or, or, or. And of course, this goes well beyond just Scientology. I also have clips and videos talking about all kinds of other things, including the Duggars, uh, thought reform, Christian cults, Mormons, Moonies, and, you know, AIDS, uh, cults A to Z. <laughs> it's all here, not just Scientology. So that all being said, and just so you guys have that little, uh, you know, intro to my channel, let's get on with your questions for this week. R.R. Smith. Why don't the orgs let staff live on property? It would solve the rent problem since they don't get paid, although as a never-in, I can see that drawing homeless to them. Yeah, okay, well, here's the thing. Some orgs do let staff live on premises. I was one of those people way back in the day in Santa Barbara. But you're going to run into zoning things. You're going to run into legal things. You're going to run into internal Scientology issues and problems because orgs aren't really meant for people to live in them, especially the new ideal orgs. They don't have sleeping quarters or rooms set up for anything like that. They're, every room has a very specific purpose, and living in it isn't one of those purposes. So it really would be pretty much impossible in the unless you, you know, like, like during COVID, when um when uh, Rose told us about how at the Columbus Org some people were living in the Org, showering in the Purif sauna, you know, facility area, and uh, and eating out of the you know out of the cafe or something, and so you could physically do it, live in an ideal Org. But it's not ideal. <laughs> it wouldn't really be what they should be doing. And I am positive that there would be normally, normally that there would be rules against that sort of thing. Sea Org members out there on mission, you know, and COVID being the situation it was, that was a very, very unusual time. Um, I understand that there is some birthing provided for uh, for Sea Org members or for some staff in certain areas. I've heard rumors or have heard about 
In Kansas City, they might have a staff facility. And this is something that was always talked about amongst the staff in different org areas where they were like, we should get a staff apartment or we should get a staff house. And sometimes that would happen and they would sort of pool their resources so they could live communally. Uh, I, we start, we, I heard about this all the way back to the 1970s in Scientology. So, um, so it's not an unheard of you know, thing or, or there's no precedent for it. Um, so, that, so the answer to the question is sometimes under certain circumstances, the orgs do let people live on their property or they help arrange for the property uh, or other properties to be rented out or, or gotten for the staff. But staff welfare and, uh, and really keeping up with and taking care of the staff is something that seems to be wanted in Scientology by the staff, by the public even, um, by the Sea Org. They want the staff on the job 24-7 if they could. And so getting them into facilities where they can, you know, live cheap and work together and, you know, and, and live together and all that seems like that would be something the Sea Org would push and would want. But then there's the reality that the Sea Org doesn't really care that much about the staff because the Sea Org have all their own problems. They are already living in pretty crap conditions and they already know it. They're getting paid crap and they know it. And their lifestyle kind of sucks. Being in a Sea Org is a sucky place to be. Uh, the dorms suck. The food sucks. I mean, it's just not a great existence, no matter how you look at it, unless you're David Miscavige, who gets the best of the best of the best of everything 24-7. He's the guy who's catered to in Scientology. But every other Sea Org member, eh, you know, maybe they get an award every now and again. Maybe they get a bonus every now and again. But the punishments come just as fast as the rewards and more frequently. So... Um, so the Sea Org kind of have this kind of bad attitude ingrained in them culturally toward the staff. They think the staff are like footloose and fancy free. Well, you can go get a job. You got a spouse. You got money. You have access to money. You have access to resources. It's not that bad in the real world, in the, in, out in the, you know, the, the, the log world, pardon me, but that's the, how they talk about it. And, um, and so the Sea Org don't really take – so my point is that this attitude kind of gets in the way of the Sea Org really helping arrange for the staff to do better or have better conditions or have livable conditions or earn a living wage. They, they don't really care that much about the staff is kind of what ends up happening. And then the staff are made to figure this stuff out. Well, they're not going to figure out living in the ideal orgs. They're not going to let them do that. So the staff housing or birthing or whatever they're going to work out on any of that, and it's, it, it only happens ra rarely, relatively few and far between, because um, they just don't organize it really well, and they don't have a lot of resources for it. So unless somebody has some money and some real gung-ho attitude out there uh, for the staff, this kind of thing doesn't tend to get organized up very well, or, la or if it does, it tends to fall apart fairly quickly. Um, we've seen instances of it, like I said, many, many times over the years in different places and for different reasons. But at the end of the day, it tends to just fall apart or not be sustainable because Scientology as a, as a sort of entity, as a monolithic organization, isn't going to put money into that and really barely registers any care or compassion for their staff at all. 
even though Miscavige and others might really truly want better conditions for the staff, they either are too incompetent, too stupid, or too evil intentioned, if I, you know, at times, to provide it. It is a destructive cult. This is not a group that really exists for the betterment of its people. It only gives lip service to that, and structurally it's set up to just take advantage of its members and its own staff, not take care of them. And that's really kind of, at the end of the day, the bottom line with the whole thing, where you might see little blips or might see little positive moves you know, register on the, on the radar every now and again, but then it always falls apart. So there you go. Jonathan Hunter, I was wondering if you consider the Amish or Mennonites a destructive cult. Thanks for asking. I've been uh, wondering about these guys for many, many years, did a little bit of study on this and answering this question. And no, I will say just straight off, jump to the jump right to the, the conclusion here that no, the Amish and Mennonites do not appear to me to be a destructive cult. Like any group out there, you can find abusive members abusing other members. You'll find family difficulties, domestic violence, um, you know, neighborhood spats and disputes, problems and issues, unruly kids, abused kids. All of these things you will find in Amish and Mennonite communities, just like you'll find in any other community anywhere under any banner organized for any reason. So we can't look to individual anecdotes or individual people who have had a bad time and say, oh, well, that one story or two stories or even 10 or 20 stories do not constitute enough evidence to say the entire activity is a destructive cult. Amish and Mennonites are offshoots of Christianity. They have basic Christian beliefs. They follow New Testament uh, laws and and ideals, and um, the difference, the main difference between the Amish and the Mennonites in terms of the particulars of their is mainly lifestyle and the and the non written codes and rules of how those lifestyles are lived more so than their actual religious dogma. There, are, I'm, I'm sure there are some differences, but mainly it comes down to lifestyle choices and how they enact their beliefs. The Mennonites, for example, are completely fine with using electronics and, and mechanized or motored vehicles and machinery, and uh, the Amish are not. They, they ride around in horses and buggies to actually symbolize the fact that they you know, don't, they'll, they'll ride as a passenger in a car, but they're never going to drive a car. And they're not going to go around often in cars, and they are never going to get into an airplane. They will fly, or they will not fly. They will travel on train. They will travel on foot. They will travel on a, in a car or a bus, uh, but they will not fly. Uh, I don't know that that's true for Mennonites, but that's certainly true for the Amish. And so Mennonites, you might find, you know, dressed normally. They might look like you or me. Amish, always plain, simple clothing, overalls, you know, straw hats, um, simple shirts. The women, you know, very particular kind of dress. It's kind of old-fashioned, you could say, uh, for lack of a better term, right? That's very traditional. And they believe in their traditions, and those religious traditions are how they choose to live their life. And choice is, it's about choice, okay? And, and when we talk about cults, we're talking about binding people's choices, and we're not necessarily going to um, get into kids because... 
you know, kids are raised in the families they're raised in, and they're going to follow the beliefs and ideals of the family they're raised in, whether they're Muslim, Jewish, Christian, Scientologists, or nothing. Um, so we can't necessarily judge the whole group by the fact that they're raising their kids with Amish or Mennonite beliefs. That's what everybody does. But are those kids abused, harmed, trafficked as a result of those communities or beliefs? No, not really. I couldn't find anything specific or particular to Amish or Mennonites that would stand out as singularly abusive. In fact, by practice, by dogmatic tradition, when you're 16 years old, you have Ramspringa, where you get to go off. It's free days. It's, 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 you take a year off, right? Now, do they prep those kids very well for life outside? No, they don't, because they've rejected life outside. The Amish adults don't want to live in the outside world, and that's the choice they made. Then they bring their kids up in this world, and they don't necessarily know how to tell them all about what goes on in the big wide world because they're not connected with it. They're not watching TV. They're not on scooping the internet or uh, on Instagram or anything. That These are communities of people who push back on and don't want to be part of that. So their kids are often, unfortunately, underprepared for when they do get that year off. And there are communities and people who try to assist and help those kids. And if they come from abusive homes or you know problematic issues with mom or dad or something like that, then, um, you know, some people are there to help them with that. And that could definitely be done better by our standards from outside judging them. But 85% of people who are raised in the Amish world go back to the Amish world. And that's a voluntary thing. You don't have to do that. And I have to say, dogmatically, culturally, you know, institutionally speaking, that's a practice that is the exact opposite of what destructive cults would do. They, you know, they do, destructive cults are not groups that are turn the other cheek or are live and let live. So if you're giving your children an opportunity to make their own choices, have their own informed consent of what it's like outside and, and their experience growing up in an Amish or Mennonite community, that's about as much free will as you can give somebody. And if they don't come back, they're not necessarily shunned and disconnected and they can never talk to their parents again. That very much depends on each individual family in these groups. There's no leader, central, unified authority to any of this, which is another reason why I say these are not destructive cults. They're not all bowing and scraping to one guy or a council of people. There are so many varieties of Amish and Mennonite communities and the various flavors, you could say, of it. And this is worth noting because, um, because that means there is a very wide diversity of thought within these communities. Same basic religious principles, but how they practice them, how they tolerate other people practicing them, and how they deal with those changes says a lot about their willingness to let people think and believe and practice their faith as they see fit, 
rather than trying to dictate to every single person, this is the only way, there is no other way, and if you are not doing it my way, you are evil and must be destroyed and get out right now before I kill you. That's the cult attitude, and that's not the Amish or Mennonite attitude, at least not in the study that I did of this or the experience that I have with it. So if I'm missing this big time, or if there's something huge that I'm not seeing, if there's some elephant in the room that I'm missing right now, feel free to let me know in the comments or write me an email and let me know. But uh, the research and, and work that I've done on this doesn't tell me that these groups are destructive cults. And I actually pulled up just to... Uh, um, kind of look at this a little bit more squarely as I pulled up my own cult checklist. And the reasons why I don't see, according to the group of characteristics I use in judging a group, is I do not see an excessively zealous and unquestioning commitment to their leader or leadership. Uh, they question them all the time and they have conversation and debate and all of that. Um, there is no absolute truths that you must live by or you're, you know, or you're out of here. Um, well, I mean, there are some, sorry, there are some. <laughs> but what I mean is it's not a, you know, it's, it's not as dictatorial as it is, say, in Scientology, right? Um, where you can still maintain a relationship as a family member or something like that, even though you don't necessarily agree with the central dogma. Uh, you're not going to find that kind of thing going on in Scientology very often. Um, I also did not necessarily find evidence of mind-altering practices used in excess and serving to suppress doubts about the group or its leaders, you know, chanting, TRs, OW write-ups, confession culture, spying on each other, you know, all this really nasty culty stuff that Scientology gets up to. Didn't really notice that same level or degree of activity and certainly not dogmatically called for in these communities as well. Um, the leadership dictates, sometimes in great detail, how members should think, act, and feel. Yeah, sometimes that happens in these groups. Um, but I don't particularly see a polarized us versus them mentality. Um, and they also are held accountable to outside authorities. The, the, the Amish and Mennonites recognize the power and authority of the U.S. government and their local and state governments and the law. And they don't try to buck those systems. They work with them. They say, look, we we're, we're pacifists. If you draft us for World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, which they did, we're going to be conscientious objectors. We're not going to go pick up a rifle and kill people. And the, and the, and the uh, military and the government actually had to bend will to the Amish and many other religious communities in drafting up um, conscientious objector policies and dealing with that so they could put those people to work and be useful, sometimes right back on their own family farm, by the way, which I found fascinating. Join the military, you get drafted, join the military, and you end up working on the farm because they were producing food and surplus and supplies for the war effort. So... You know, so it's kind of a funny thing how um, you can work with the governments and work with the law and say, these are our beliefs, our beliefs are not going to change, and our actions are informed by our beliefs, and so we're willing to help, we're willing to work, we're willing to do something to forward the, the larger effort here, we're willing to join the military, but we're not going to do X, Y, and Z. All right, I'll do anything for my government, but I won't do that. So, um, so I didn't particularly see this whole, like, you know, sort of uh, d 
divisive, you know, fighting kind of uh, attitude coming out of the Amish about this. Uh, quite the opposite, right? And they're certainly not preoccupied with bringing in new members, by the way. That's another characteristic, is the group is preoccupied with that kind of thing. The Amish don't disseminate. They don't propagate. They don't try to get people to join them. Uh, you can join them. You can go be part of it. But they're not out there, like, proselytizing, which is interesting because they've grown and grown and grown. I mean, there's, like, you know, half a million Amish or something in the in the U.S. right now, I believe. Um, they're also not preoccupied with making money. They make a living selling furniture and doing various other things, selling their crops, I guess, doing whatever it is that they are doing that is very simple, you know, tied to the land kind of labor. But they're not, you know, rolling around, uh, you know, lighting their uh, pipes with $100 bills, right? They're just not that community. They are simple people. And their leadership are simple. And, they, and they're not craving uh, power, influence, or, or money. Um, so that's kind of a thing, right? Um, so there are exclusionary activities that I can say the Amish and Mennonites engage in. They are definitely a, a cloistered community by choice. And uh, yet it's not really, I really don't see them as an extremist group. Uh, certainly not extreme in terms of extreme sexual uh, proclivities or violations, nor uh, extreme violence. They're pacifists. So, you know, so that's kind of my breakdown on, on what I see and what I know about the Amish and Mennonites. So I hope that was interesting. Taffy Sinclair. LRH says that children are simply thetans in little bodies, and they've lived trillions of lifetimes. So why the silent birth? Why shield the baby from noise? We're all capable thetans that have fought wars, bombed volcanoes, and who knows what else. And if a labor and delivery room is where thetans pick up a meat body, why does gestational time matter? All right, so in Dianetics, there is this concept of a silent birth. This is under the banner of preventative Dianetics. The idea being that if we know that you are going to have problems, real stress and trauma, because you experience moments of pain and unconsciousness in your life and people are talking during those times. These are called engrams, these, these moments of pain and unconsciousness, whether you get hit with a hammer or you fall off your bike or you get in a car accident or you're giving birth. These are all engrams for the person going through them. There's pain, there's unconsciousness. Even if it's lessened awareness, lessened, you know, you're drugged up or you pass out or something like that, unconsciousness. So Hubbard says every single one of these engrams, and you have billions of them, are potentially restimulative of earlier engrams, which will bring in pain and unconsciousness on you now from those earlier times. And not only are the pains and sensations of those earlier times going to impinge on you now, but the words that were said in the engram that you're having right now could approximate words or sounds in your past engrams. And if that's true, then every single engram potentially could create 
re-stimulate this whole chain of past episodes and cause you a great deal of grief and problems now. Whereas if they just lie dormant and are not re-stimulated and they don't get turned back on or reactivated, then they're not hurting you. They're just, they're just sitting there and you've got billions and billions of these things. Now, what is the determination from when an engram goes into re-stimulation, boink, here it is, right? And when does it go out of re-stimulation? No one knows. Who knows? L. Ron Hubbard never said. It's not clear. So they could go in and out of re-stimulation anytime. So you get re-stimulated, you get de-stimulated. You get re-stimulated, you get de-stimulated. This is the pattern of your life. As things happen to you, they're going to re-stimulate things that have happened to you in the past. And you're going to have all kinds of weird subconscious impulses, pains, issues, problems. And because of the words that were said in those past incidents, those words are going to come back to haunt you. So if somebody says to you, in a, and this is all Dianetics, okay? This is, none of this is actually true, but this is Dianetics, okay? So if you have an engram from when you were seven years old of getting bit by a dog and somebody is standing there watching you get bit by this dog, or even better, if you have an engram of being born and the doctor in the, in the you know, birthing process says, oh, gee, man, this guy's going to have a hard time. Oh, no. The doctor says, I'm trying to get in there, but I'm having a hard time seeing it. Perfectly innocent thing for a doctor to say in the moment. He's having a hard time seeing something. Maybe the baby, maybe, maybe some part of the baby, maybe some tool, maybe some other thing. Who knows what he's talking about? Who cares? It's recorded. And because it's recorded, according to Dianetics Theory, when it gets re-stimulated later on, those words are going to have a command value. They're not just going to be words or sounds. They're going to be commands, okay? That's the whole thing about Dianetics. That's the crux of it, is that the words that were said in the engram is later going to, they're later going to be revisited on you as commands, okay? So, now, this doctor, these words that you heard as a little baby coming out, and the doctor saying, I just can't see it, means your reactive mind is telling you in the here and now with this re-stimulated engram that you can't see it. And you're going to take those words and that command and you're going to apply it. Your, your mind is going to apply it in the here and now to whatever context it is fitting now. And you're not being born right now. Maybe you're studying a book or maybe you're trying to figure out a problem. Or maybe you're trying, maybe you're in an argument with your, with your spouse. And here you are in this argument, and your, your spouse is trying to explain something to you, and you are being commanded, I just can't see it. I just can't see it. And you're interpreting this to be whatever your spouse is talking about. I just can't see it. I just don't get it. I just don't understand. I just don't see it. And you just keep saying this. I just don't see it. This is, this is the theory of how Dianetics is supposed to work. 
So that all being said, and I hope that all makes some degree of sense, even though it's not true, that's how Hubbard explains all of this stuff in the book Dianetics. So if that's all, but if it were all true, then it would be very, very important for you to not say a goddamn word during moments of pain and unconsciousness in anyone's life. Somebody gets hurt, shut up. Don't say a word. And if you're giving birth, you know before you even walk in the room, there's going to be an engram today, <laughs> right? That baby's coming out and it ain't going to be pleasant. The mom is about to experience an engram and so is the baby, both of them. There's nothing that can be done to prevent it. It's going to be painful and there's going to be unconsciousness. And therefore, there's going to be an engram and therefore, shut the hell up because anything anybody says in that environment is going straight into that baby's reactive mind and the mother's reactive mind as well. They will have a shared engram. Okay, so that's the concept there. And that's why you shield the baby from the noise, and that's why you do all the gyrations that you do in Scientology when around an injured person to shut the hell up. And Scientologists, as a group, will do that. If somebody is hurt or injured in, a, in any situation anywhere, for, for any reason, everybody around them just quiets down. And they let the process, they let the person go, you know, go through whatever it is they're going through in the pain and agony that they're suffering from and trying to not say a damn word and take the person away and deal with the injury or, you know, accident or whatever. And then people will start talking again once the guy's or, or woman is out of hearing range. And that's just a thing that they do in Scientology because of this whole thing. Um, and that's why. So even if you've had a billion, billion engrams of a billion, billion births, they're not necessarily in re-stimulation. But if you add to the pile by saying a bunch of stuff around an injured person, Scientologists see that as you're purposefully trying to mess them up. Because now you know, right? Now you know that it's a bad thing to do, so, so don't do it. And that's how they kind of think about this whole thing. And that's why, right? It was, yes, we are all capable thetans who have lived billions and millions of lives. But why add to the stress and trauma, right? That's the theory of the thing. And, um, uh, you know, uh, do with it what you will. But that's, that's the fact of the matter as to why Scientologists act the way they do. Mark P. The question about using TV and movies as therapy triggered a different take. In the situation of Sea Org, I remember you talking about coming out and not knowing the references people would make to old TV shows and other things that were not available to you in the Sea Org. Do you think it would have been helpful to have someone loan you a season of Friends or some of the other popular series from the time they were in Esso? There are a lot of societal things that come and go in real life and on trendy shows of the time. Maybe call it culture catch-up. Yeah, Mark, that's exactly right. And that's exactly the kind of thing I was working on for years after I got out is I was catching up on South Park and I was going back and watching old movies and TV shows. I saw The Dark Knight when I was in the Sea Org, but I never saw Batman Begins. <laughs> so I went back and saw that. And, 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 right? Movies, uh, books, television shows, magazines, uh, stuff on streaming services, YouTube videos. I was spending months, years catching up on stuff that I didn't know anything about, hadn't heard of. Whole, I mean, friends. I, 
I never did do Friends. Uh, I did a bunch of other shows. I did Deadwood, The Wire, Breaking Bad. I mean, there were lots and lots and lots of shows I've caught up on. Uh, I probably watched like 18 seasons of South Park or something before I was kind of like, okay, enough South Park. Uh, I've watched, you know, just I caught up on all kinds of stuff. And that's exactly what I put it, you know, thought about it as was culture catch up. And it took a long time. And I'm and that was all part of the reacclimation process. For me, I have encouraged other people to do the same, you know, enmesh yourself in the culture that you're in now. It's no different than when you move to another country and you want to find out and get all caught up to speed on what's hip and, and happening in that culture. Because it's not your culture, it's a different culture, and you're trying to acclimate to it and get used to it and find out about it. And our entertainment avenues are, or venues are, are absolutely one of the best ways to go about doing that. Because you hear how people talk for real, you see how they interact, you see what's important to them, what's not important, how the culture works, what topics are, are uh, not only trendy, but what was in, what's in now, why did it fall out of fashion, that kind of thing. Uh, who was hip and cool, who's not now. You know, you kind of have to pick up all of that stuff. And, uh, and, it's, and it's very, very, very helpful for shedding a lot of cult crap to, to kind of pull all that stuff into your space and, and think about it and, and, uh, and become part of it. You know, become, start becoming a fan of this stuff and things like that, you know. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. I think that this is a, I think this is a vital part of anybody who's lived in a cloistered bubble world to, you know, to have to experience. And, and, uh, and, uh, and it's fun at the same time. Renegade 777. In the Tom Cruise Medal of Valor ceremony, there was narration at the end which stated that Tom had introduced 1.5 billion people on Earth to Scientology technology. This is absurd, but do you care to comment on the audaciousness of this? And what would it be like if this were actually true? What a great question, and this is exactly the kind of question that needs to be asked of Scientologists much more often because they just take these numbers in uncritically, unthinkingly, and they just go, oh, yeah, 1.5 billion people, absolutely, through all the books and advertisements and radio and TV and all this mass media that Tom Cruise is on. Every time he mentions Dianetics or Scientology, he's bringing Scientology to all these billions of people who are watching. But you have to realize that these numbers just become meaningless after a certain level, and they just are out there to create effects, not really communicate reality. The, the, the Dianetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health, is Scientology's oldest book. It was May 1950. It's sold 20 million copies since 1950. 20 million, which sounds like a lot, and it is a lot, but it's nowhere near 1.5 billion 1.5 billion people is, the, is, is actually slightly larger than the population of China. And there is no chance, there is 0.00% chance that Tom Cruise has reached that many people with messages about Dianetics and Scientology. And he certainly hasn't converted that many people over to become book buyers even, much less uh, full-blown practicing Scientologists. But you throw out a figure like 1.5 billion, which people just invent out of nowhere, and, and it's easy to do because you look at all the mass media, like I was talking about, all the, all the airwaves he's 
Amazon, all the you know streaming services, all the this and that. You just take all that stuff and you fudge the numbers and add them all up however you want to, and you come up with $1.5 billion. I'm absolutely positive that was a very impressive figure that that uh, that Tom was happy to hear and that David Miscavige was happy to hear as well because somebody probably gave it to him. You know, we did all these calculations, sir, and we figured out that Tom Cruise has talked this many times on this many channels and, you know, reached these many people and we broke it all down and here it is, right? And it's bullshit. It's total bullshit, right? It, it, the, the, the population of China is beyond human reckoning. I mean, 1.5 billion people that's a a billion is a thousand million and a million is a thousand thousand so you're talking about a thousand 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 right you're talking about a tremendous number of people scientology wishes on its best day ever they could never have reached that many people so uh, so this is my reaction, of course, to the audaciousness of this is this is bullshit. Um, you know, Dianetics has barely, barely, barely scratched the surface out there. You know, it, bestsellers, famous people, people who a lot who you think of as very, very famous, a tiny fraction of the population has ever heard of them. I, I mean, really? You know, 10 million copies sold of any book is a, is a thin little slice. It, it would barely register on a pie chart of the world population. So you see what I mean? When you start talking about the real big numbers, the, the, the things we think of as influential, big numbers, very, very popular television shows, very, very popular movies, we think of these and we're registering numbers in the hundreds of thousands or millions. When you start talking about the planetary population, you're talking in the billions. It's a whole other order of magnitude, literally. So, um, if, so now, what would it be like if this were actually true? It would be night and day different. If 1.5 billion people on this planet actually had Scientology on their lips, had heard about it, knew about it, had something intelligent to say about it, Oh, my God, Scientology would be huge. It would be huge because there would be that many more members because people sign up even to this day, right? Because in other countries, for example, all of us critics doing all our critical work, this is in English. Not much of this is translated. Very, very little. Some people have taken it upon themselves to translate some of my videos over the years into French, German, um, Spanish. And I think maybe one might have gotten over into, into Chinese at some point. Um, I don't know, you know, but I, I don't keep track of that stuff. I'm not doing that. I'm not hiring people to translate my, my work. Uh, so it, in other words, people in these other countries who don't speak English or English is not their native language are not necessarily seeing all the stuff that we all know about. And so they're not forewarned about Scientology. And therefore, when Scientology goes into those areas, right, they have some degree of success. And that's something we need to also be aware of, uh, is Scientology and Scientology's materials are some of the most translated materials on the planet. They've put them in all the languages. But all the critics are pretty far behind on that effort. <laughs> so you're going to find that the more people who find out about Scientology, hear about it, think about it, think it might be something to it, 
well, they'll join. And we don't see anything like that happening right now because Scientology has almost no reach out of any kind. They're a tiny, eensy-weensy, little, eensy, tiny, tiny, tiny group with their flippers pulled in right now. They're not even really trying to get new members. We talk about this all the time. So, um, so the world would look radically different if uh, Tom Cruise had actually succeeded at doing what they said he did, and uh, there would be a lot more Scientologists. Yeah. Uh, so let's be thankful that Tom Cruise is not anywhere near as effective as the church thinks he is. Michael Yoder, in a lecture on factors of clearing from 1958, LRH talks a lot of word salad as usual, but there were a few terms I'm not familiar with. He mentions arbitraries and demon circuits, which seems to have something to do with valences. And then he also mentioned an individuated thetan. What do these mean in Scientologies? All right, time for technical queries with Michael Yoder. So here we go. I love Mike's uh, real minutiae questions about Scientology that I get to comment on. So uh, this week, arbitraries. These are uh, basically opinions, okay? Arbitraries are, are requirements or mandates you have to follow or go along with or, or, or produce but they're only based on some joker's opinion. It's an arbitrary idea. It's it's made up. It's not it's not written. It's not a um, uh, a formalized sort of rule. But somebody's got the authority to order it, and so they order it, and then people do it. But it wasn't really ever authorized. It's an arbitrary order. The guy just made it up, right? Uh, and and people do this all the time. They make up all kinds of stupid rules for all kinds of stupid reasons, in and out of Scientology. And when they do, those are called arbitraries. Um, demon circuits. Now, this one I went and looked up for you, and this is in the Scientology Technical Dictionary. And given what I just explained, and one of the reasons why I explained all that engramic stuff in detail is for this one, too, because I knew this question was coming. So a demon circuit is a Dianetics term, and it has to do with the reactive mind and engrams. Uh, Hubbard calls a demon circuit a mental mechanism that is set up by an engramic command. Like I was mentioning earlier, you get an injury and uh, somebody's talking, and that those words end up becoming a command to you later on, completely out of context, and you're gonna apply that command in the here and now in some kind of crazy ass way because it's an arbitrary command. It's not, it doesn't have any place or use in the here and now, but it's being forced in anyway, and that's an engramic command. Now, a demon circuit takes it one step further, though, because it becomes, um, when an engramic command or when an engram gets re-stimulated, it can get, it can stay in re-stimulation and stay and stay and stay. Maybe the circumstances of your job or your marriage or your family or some other repetitive thing in your life keeps re-stimulating some past engram. Okay, and so the engram becomes supercharged. It's re-stimulated over and over and over again. And as you're re-stimulating it over and over again, you're creating new ones. And these are called secondary engrams. And they, and they get supercharged uh, through the constant re-stimulation. And then what ends up happening is, according to Hubbard, 
this charge that is building up actually takes over part of your analytical mind. And structurally, he doesn't explain this. This is just an analogy. Um, you know, we don't know. Hubbard never really provided any solid basis for how this all really looks. But structurally, as a model, this charge takes over and uh, becomes its own person in your mind. It's a fake person. It's a fake beingness. It's a fake individual. But it only has one or two things that it keeps saying. Or it takes the same tune and it keeps repeating it in various ways usually this is done when you have language that has the word you in it so if the doctor had said oh man this is a doozy i don't know if you're going to make it through this one or "Ooh, you don't look so good maybe that's an easier one "Ooh, you don't look so good well that has the word you in it and now we have this phrase coming back to you later on that says you don't look so good so maybe you're getting ready for a party and your husband says something that sounds exactly like what the doctor was saying and suddenly this engram comes into restimulation and suddenly you think you don't look so good. And you're here, you're all decked out, makeup, ready to go. But suddenly, unreasonably, out of nowhere, you feel like you don't look so good and, you're, and, this, and this voice in your head is now telling you you don't look so good. You look awful. You, you look terrible. It'll, it'll build on it. That's the demon circuit, that voice in your head. Okay? And it all comes from the engram, which comes from the words from the moment of pain and unconsciousness. Right? And this is all Dianetics Theory 101. So that's how that stuff works. Um, now, you also asked about individuated thetan that is a thetan that's a spiritual entity that is all on its own i don't need any of you people individuated off being an individual no longer connected with other people or other entities and not wanting to right off on their own introverted introspective pulled the flippers in that's an individuated thetan okay so there you go. I hope those uh, help clarify L. Ron Hubbard's word salad for you. All right, folks. So that was our show this week. I want to remind everybody of things I have not talked about in a long time. I have merch for sale. Links below to my Spreadshirt store. YouTube helps promote this for me on some channels. Uh, there are logos. There's shirts, hats, uh, you know, bed covers, towels. There's a lot of items available on Spreadshirt, uh, on my Spreadshirt store, for you to check out uh, with some of the uh, logos. Even this shirt here, Facts Matter, available to you there. You can get it on a hat. Etc. So I definitely, definitely encourage you guys to support the channel by supporting yourself, gifting uh, these items to other people, etc. The other thing I wanted to plug is Patreon. Uh, this is the way that I mainly am supported through this channel and through my work is through Patreon. Links below. You can also show me some love through PayPal, Venmo, uh, or YouTube memberships, which I've now activated. So there's a join button down there. And you can support the show that way as well. All of this in an effort to uh, help support what I'm doing here so I can deliver more and better uh, video work to you and 
uh, and help teach the world. And that's all I'm trying to do here. So thanks very much for coming around and watching. I very, very much appreciate it. And uh, I should probably also plug that I do uh, consultation as well. Okay, so if you want one-on-one -on -one with me, we can do it. We can arrange it. I can help you uh, with situations dealing with coercive control. I went and got this degree for that, you know, for a reason, and helping people is that reason. So I realized I can continue to make videos, but I can also work with people one-on-one. -on -one. So if you have somebody you know in a cult or domestic situation that is not good, you want some help, you want some advice, you want some direction on what to do, reach out to me and I can help with that. Uh, if you're recovering from a cult or coercive situation and you want some help, reach out to me. Let's talk. Uh, all right. So that all being said, now let's wrap up. Thanks for watching. I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.